John chapter 14, 22 to 24. Why is Christ disclosed to us only? Why to us only? Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll teach us from this word how sweet and precious it is that you have disclosed yourself to us uniquely to us and not to the world. Thank you for this great privilege. Thank you for this blessing, all because of your grace toward us. But Father, also show us from this passage that this is shown by keeping or not keeping your word. True love of you is manifested that way. May this truth register in our our hearts and may we be able to explain this truth properly and accurately to others. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. In this discourse, this discourse of Christ is his last major discourse or message or lesson to his disciples until he dies. This discourse, just like the discourses of the past, such as the Mosaic one, in the book of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, or the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, 26 to 34, encompass his last messages. The same, Joshua undertook with a discourse or two before he died in Joshua chapters 23 to 24. In the same way, we have our Lord and Savior here in John 14, John It starts in 13, at the end of 13, and through chapter 16, he has this last long message or discourse for his disciples. In each of these cases, we notice that we're dealing with professing believers, professing Christians. Moses, his audience, was the nation of Israel. They experienced Sinai. They had 40 years of lessons under the instruction of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And in the case of Joshua, Joshua, who succeeded Moses, he also was the commander. He was the leader of the nation, commander of their military, leader of their nation, and he was a prophet of God. The word of God came to him too. And he, in his discourse, he addresses the nation of professing believers. The same way here, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, does so to his own disciples. He has a final message. What we notice in these final messages or final discourses of Moses, Joshua, and even Christ, to name a few, that they don't shower praise on their audience. They don't shower niceties on their audience. They don't flatter their audience. They don't do that. Moses doesn't do it. Joshua doesn't do it. Nor does Christ do it. We do need to modify that comment 
with the fact that Christ is dealing with his genuine disciples here. He is dealing with his genuine disciples, except for one, Judas Iscariot. He's dealing with them. But even with his genuine, true disciples, true believers, true Christians, he is still telling them and warning them about how they must love God and love their neighbor as themselves. They must do so. And they must keep his words. They must keep his commandments. And when they do so, they show to themselves and to others that they are true believers. But when those aspects are absent in their life, then they show that they are unbelievers. The lesson he's telling them to his true disciples is to remain faithful, to remain loving him, whether Jesus is physically present or not, remain faithful to him until the end. That is the essential message. And the way that they show that they are faithful to him is by loving him. And the way that they show that they love him is by keeping his words, keeping his commandments. This is how they demonstrate that they are true believers. They are producing the fruit of the Spirit in their life, and it's evident to them and evident to others that they are distinct, they are unique, they don't live the way the world lives. Not anymore. This is his final message to them. Even in the, even in the discourse of Christ, he is not showering flatteries on them. He's not embellishing his relationship to them. He is sincerely telling them that the Father and I and the Spirit are your comforters. We will make our abode with you. We do care for you. We do love you. And we will be with you. We won't forsake you. He is certainly assuring them of that. And in our passage and in the previous passage, he does assure them that this love of the Father causes the Father and the Son and the Spirit to disclose themselves to the true disciples. This disclosure or revelation of themselves to the disciples is uniquely, distinctly for the true disciples. This also he does to encourage them. But all of this encouragement is not absent, is not devoid of warnings, of admonishments. This is what he does in this discourse, throughout the discourse. Sometimes it's encouragement, sometimes it's admonishment, sometimes it's both with explanation. Here, Judas is amazed with what Jesus Christ has just said. Judas. First, we notice it is Judas, not Iscariot. Why does John the Apostle tell us it's Judas, not Iscariot? First, let's identify who Judas is and then why he says not Iscariot. The Judas here, among the 12 disciples, two of the men, all were men, two of the men had the name Judas. And this name was a popular name because Judas is a Greek and Latin form of the Old Testament word Judah. It's the word or the name Judah. But it has been changed because 
of its transition into the Greek language, into Judas. So it's a common name, and it's a good name. It's the name of that first patriarch, and then of the tribe, and then of the kingdom called Judah. So this is a common name for a man, Judah or Judas. And in the case of the twelve, two of the men were named Judas. But the one Judas here is known as Judas, son of James. Judas, son of James, in Luke 6.16 and the book of Acts 1.13. Luke 6.16 and the book of Acts 1.13. In those two places where a list of the names of the, of the disciples are recorded, this Judas is called Judas, son of James. However, in Matthew and Mark, where the list of the disciples occur, Matthew and Mark call this same disciple by his other name. It might have been his surname or another name, a nickname, but we don't know exactly why he was named that other name. But in Matthew 10.3 and Mark 3.18, Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, he is called Thaddeus. Thaddeus. Thaddeus is the same as Judas, son of James, or in this case, John 14, 22, Judas, not Iscariot. That is the same man, the same disciple, true disciple, because only one was a false disciple, Judas Iscariot. Then, having used this name, he says, not Iscariot. Why would he tell us not Iscariot? Perhaps not only to make a distinction such as we just made, that there were two men named Judas. Not only for that reason, but if he uses the name Judas and then says not Iscariot, does that not have the effect of saying, we know Iscariot was a fraud, but this Judas is not a fraud. So he is establishing that this Judas is asking or making a comment, asking a sincere question. He's not asking a pretentious question. He's not trying to trick Christ. He's not asking in unbelief. He's asking sincerely, genuinely, humbly. It is a genuine and humble question that this Judas is asking. And what is it? What is it? Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And why this question? Because of verse 21. In the previous paragraph, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. In the previous message, we saw that this disclosure is this personal, experiential relationship where we grow in holiness and godliness. As we are obedient, the Lord reveals himself more and more to us. He supplies us with his grace more. He supplies us with knowledge more. He supplies us with victory more because of this 
bond we have between the, the God we serve who lives in us so we begin or are growing in our knowledge and obedience and love and relationship with our God. That is the kind of disclosure Christ mentioned in verse 21. Well, Judas, he sees that this is the point he's making, Christ is making, but he is asking genuinely and humbly the question, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? He's asking humbly, why Lord me? He's asking a humble question. Why in the world would it be us and not the rest of the world? Why is it that Christ is revealed to them and not to everyone else? This is a typical question that a true believer, because he is a humble true believer, he asked, why me? Now, in terms of why me and not my neighbor, the Bible never answers that question except to say for the glory of God. God does as he pleases. In that sense, it's not answered. But in the sense that it is dependent upon fully the gracious predestinarian work of God in us, to that extent, the Bible answers it everywhere. That it has to do with God's predestinarian choice of us. But those who realize that cannot but overflow with gratitude, humble gratitude toward God. That's the way they think. That's the way they believe. And therefore, they would be prone to asking, Lord, you loved me and you didn't love the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Now, he's going to answer this question by the fruit. He's not going to answer it by the cause. The cause meaning what we just said about God's gracious predestinarian work. He's not going to answer it that way. He's going to answer it based on the fruit because that is the evidence everybody needs to see to have assurance in their heart. They need to see the evidence, the fruit, that which is on the outside in order to understand who is really a follower of Christ, a lover of Christ. That's why he's answering it that way. And the Bible will sometimes answer it in terms of the cause, God's predestination. And at other times, the Bible will answer it in terms of the fruit, the result of the cause, the fruit, the works. And that's the way Jesus answers it in verses 23 and 24. And sometimes the Bible will do both in the same passage, in the same verse, or in the same sentence. It's one or the other that is often highlighted. But both are true. Both the cause and the result. Okay, then... Having seen that, that he is disclosing himself to us, not to the world. Let's now see that this should be everyone's attitude. Not only the attitude of the 11, but everyone's attitude. Luke 17, verse 5. Luke 17, 5 to 10. 
Luke 17, 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which one of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. In verses 5 and 6, he teaches them how, or that they ought to have increased faith, or what their increased faith could produce. Even a, a, a meager amount of faith would be able to uproot a mulberry tree. That's an illustration of having great conquest in one's spiritual life. That's what he means by that. Then, in verses 7 to 10, with this faith coupled with humility and obedience. Humble obedience is the emphasis in verses 7 to 10. Humble obedience coupled with faith in verses 5 and 6. And actually, in verses 3 and 4, or 1 to 4, coupled with repentance. Repentance in verses 1 to 4, faith in verses 5 and 6, humble obedience, verses 7 to 10. With this combination of the graces of God, the gifts of God, he says that a slave faithfully does whatever the master tells him to do, and he does not expect the master to say thank you, but the slave ought to say, we are unworthy slaves. Why would, an why would a slave say he's an unworthy slave? We have done only that which we ought to have done. I'm just doing what you told me, Master, to do, so I'm unworthy. Which slave would do that except a humble slave who is faithfully obedient to everything the Master says? Humility. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. This and our next passage are examples of the Apostle Paul with this attitude. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 explains the sequence of who saw Christ after his resurrection. And then he says in verse 8, he describes himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. One who is untimely born, not the best of circumstances, not nine months or 40 weeks 
not at the proper time, not in proper condition, but someone who is untimely born. This is the way he looks at himself and his conversion. That it wasn't with the greatest of circumstances to celebrate the entrance of such a child into the world. Untimely born. This is further expanded upon in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. 1 Timothy 1, 12 is the Apostle Paul describing himself. And notice his gratitude. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul thanks Christ not only for putting him into service in ministry, but also for saving him. Though he was an unlikely candidate for salvation. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. He was a violent aggressor. He was all that. But what happened? What changed him? The grace of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was God's grace to save him. And in his humility, he considers himself the foremost of sinners. The foremost of sinners. The worst of all sinners. That's the kind of humility he had and gratitude toward what God had given him. That's why he has such great zeal, diligence to be obedient to Christ. Remember, he told the Romans, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, but fully and faithfully obedient. Also, 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 19 to 21. 1 John 4, 19. Here, too, the humility or the sequence that we should have because God loved us, or love we should have toward God and one another. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 
How is it possible that we love God and love our brother? Verse 19, because he first loved us. He first loved us. This is God's gracious work of election or predestination in our life. When he does that, then we are able to love, truly love. And then that is demonstrated in showing love toward our brother and loving God. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. None of this happens unless God first loves us. So when he first loves us, he humbles us to love God and to love our neighbor. That's the sequence. This is a part of the question that Judas, son of James, is asking. Also, though, when we consider this question, we have to dis- uh, ask further about this disclosure, that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. We've already seen in verse 21 that this is the promise for those who love Christ, those who keep his commandments, those who are obedient. We have the assurance of the love of the Father and the love of the Son toward us. This disclosure, though, not only was it toward the immediate disciples, but it is also toward all of us. In terms of the immediate disciples, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 40. 10, 40. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. In terms of a physical disclosure, this happened upon the resurrection to these disciples over a period of 40 days. They were chosen beforehand to be witnesses. So that personal communion, personal fellowship, they enjoyed for 40 days after the resurrection, between resurrection and ascension, Christ disclosed himself in that way there. But that disclosure, that revelation, that communion, that fellowship, they ate and drank with him. That kind of relationship they had with him was a token of their eternal relationship with him. Because one day we shall eat with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 to 10. Revelation 19, 7 to 10, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when the full disclosure will take place. But meantime, meantime, we have a foretaste of it. We have a foretaste of that marriage supper. Our first place is Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, 
Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He has given up all things for the sake of Christ. And why? Because he says in verse 8, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Upon the apostle's conversion, he knew Christ. After it, he was taught by Christ. But that wasn't the full extent of knowing Christ. Because he says that it is that he is pressing on, verse 10, that I may know him. He already knows him to some degree, but he wants to know him further in a greater degree, a relationship with Christ. This relationship is also applicable to us. First John, first John chapter one, one to four. First John chapter one, Verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands, and our hands handle, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and proclaimed, excuse me, we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This life, word of life, is Christ manifested to us. For what purpose? Verse 3 says, have fellowship with us. You may have fellowship with us. The us includes the apostles. The you includes the church. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He wants the church to have greater fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And He wants to have greater joy. Verse 4 that our joy may be made complete. He has some joy. He wants more joy because he sees the other disciples growing in the faith and growing in their love for God and fellowship with God. This, as we said, will be completed by the end of the world. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, Revelation 19, 7 to 10. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What happens at marriage suppers? Don't people fellowship? Don't people commune? Yes. And who is the center of attraction? Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, 1. We'll read 1 to 8. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's us, the church. The world is in verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the eternal communion that awaits us. But that communion starts at our conversion. From our conversion, now is the period of our consecration, being made holy, growing in our knowledge of Christ, and Christ disclosing himself more and more to us. Now is that time. But then, Revelation 19 and 21, it shall happen to full completion. The completion of it all will happen then. Verses, now back to John 14. John 14, verses 23 to 24. Verse 23, he asserts the blessing. Verse 24, the curse or the manifestation. The manifestation. The one who loves me keeps my word, verse 23. The one who does not love me does not keep my words. And then he implies the curse because he says in verse 24, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. 23 on the positive side, 24 on the negative side. The Bible describes things like this 
frequently. That which is right and then that which is wrong. That which is righteous, that which is wicked. Here, those who love Christ, verse 23, and verse 24, those who do not love Christ. But what is the difference between 23 to 24? How can we know if someone loves Christ? 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. If you love me, you keep my words. If you don't love me, you won't keep my words. Anything difficult to understand? Is that plain and simple? It is. So, he asserts it like this so that we might know clearly. This truth is often pronounced in this discourse. In 1334 to 35, 1334, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Are these not words, his words? Are these not commandments, his commandment, a new commandment? Yes, 14, 15, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Chapter 15 of John. John 15, 9, 9 to 17. 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father, I make known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. This is the kind of love, these are the kinds of words, these are the commandments he's been announcing here in this discourse. This discourse, though the immediate audience audience is the apostles, the twelve, is not restricted to the twelve in terms of their implication, in terms of their meaning. Luke 6. Luke 6, 46 to 49. Luke 6, 46 to 49. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the river burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation. And the river burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. If we hear his words, we must obey. We must act upon his words. Luke 6 applies to everybody, not only the 12 disciples. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 1 verses 1 to 5. 1 John 5, 1 to 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we are the children, excuse me, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. And this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If we believe in Christ and we love the Father, we love those born of the Father. And loving the children of God is a commandment. Loving God is a commandment. And these commandments are not burdensome. People say they are a yoke. They're too heavy upon me. It's too hard to do. I can't do it. I won't do it. But here he says they are not burdensome. And what is it that gives us the ability to overcome the world, to grant us the victory? Our faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Jesus as the Son of God, verse 5. Faith in Jesus as the Son of God means we overcome the world by faith. Faith that obeys. 2 John, 2 John chapter 4. Sorry, 2 John verse 4. 2 John 4 to 11. 2 John verses 4 to 11. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The commandment is to love one another, to walk in this commandment. This includes loving one another is not just merely doing deeds of charity toward one another, but it includes believing the truth about Christ, avoiding the deceivers, and also expelling the deceivers, not welcoming them into one's house. We must abide in the teaching of Christ. Abide in His teaching. Then we have the Father and the Son abiding in us, disclosing themselves to us. When we abide in His teaching, we have both Father and Son with us. Moreover, He said, My Father will love Him. In John 14, John 14, 23, My Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. The Father and the Son will love us. John 14, 23. This is further explained in 16, 25. John 16, 25 to 28. John 16, 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask me, ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and going to the Father. The Father loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. How is it that we know we love Christ? By our deeds, by keeping His words, His commandments. So when that happens, the Father is happy to disclose Himself to us, to love us when that occurs. We already saw that the one who abides in the teaching from 2 John has both the Father and the Son. If we abide in the teaching of Christ, we have the love of the Father and the love of the Son, wherein they dwell in us and they give us the grace we need and they assure us of our salvation. 1 John chapter 2 1 John 2, 22 to 24. 1 John 2, 22 to 24 can be added to these passages. 1 John 2, 22. On the love of the Father and the Son, they both abide in us. If we believe and do what's right. 1 John 2, 22. 
who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This term of abiding, living, remaining in God, in the Father and the Son, is based on whether we believe the truth about Christ. And if we believe the truth about Christ, we have both the Father and the Son. We abide in them and they abide in us. It's a bond because it's a bond fixed and based on the truth. But if we deny the Son, we don't have God at all. If we deny the Son, we don't have God at all. Which is what verse 24 says. John 14, 24. John 14, 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If we don't love him, we will not keep his words. Like 1 John 2, 22-24, we will deny the identity of Christ. Like 2 John 4-11, we will deny that Christ has come in the flesh. We will not love our brother, not walk in his commandments. We will greet those who are false believers and let them come into our house. We will do those things that are wrong when we are not keeping his words. When we are not keeping his words, we are not obeying him, right? So if we do not obey him, what is the consequence or what is it that we're actually disobeying? Verse 24, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. People might think, well, Christ, yeah, he was a religious man. He was a teacher. He was a historical person. He was a teacher of the Jews, among the Jews. He was just one of their numerous teachers. And actually, the vast majority of Jews think of him as a false teacher, so he's a false teacher. Yes, miracles were ascribed to him, but he didn't really perform them. People might, in one way or another, minimize, mitigate the authority of Christ, who he was and what he did. And many religions do that. Even within Christianity, people do that. They, in one way or another, they weak, uh, t- uh, turn Christ into something weaker than what the Bible actually says he is. They do that. When they do that, they are not loving Christ, not keeping his word. But they think that God, the Father, or God, is still with them. That God still loves them. That God still believes in them. That God still cares for them. That God will still give them eternal life. That God, the Father, will protect them give them salvation that they'll all go to heaven. 
or we all will go to heaven. That's what they think. That's what they do to deceive themselves, to delude themselves into thinking that it's okay if I don't follow Christ this way or that way. It's okay if I don't obey him because God will still love me because God loves all of, all of us in the world. But Jesus says here that his words are ultimately not his words, but the Father's words. They actually originate with the Father. The Father gave him words to preach on the earth. So if we deny Christ and his words, don't keep his words, we are not keeping the words of God the Father. He's here taking God completely out of the picture for anyone who does not keep the words of Christ. They don't have God. So we can't deceive ourselves into thinking God still loves them even though they don't follow Christ as obedient children. Chapters, this is not a new doctrine in John. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Let's hear it from Christ himself. Christ increases the intensity of his own words, showing us again and again that his words are not originating in him as though he is some deficient and weak, feeble teacher. Look at 7, chapter 7 and verse 16. John 7, 16. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Chapter 8, 8, 28. 8, 28 to 29. John 8, 28. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He says a time will come when they will understand who he is. And I do nothing on my own initiative. It did not initiate, originate with Christ. It originated with the Father. I speak the things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. Somebody might say, okay, but God's not in you. But here he says, no, God is with me. He has not left me alone. Moreover, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, all are in harmony with the Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Do we believe that? 838. 838. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your Father. Either all we say comes from God the Father or from the devil. We know he means the devil because he mentions the devil in verse 44. That the unbelievers speak from the devil, but believers speak from the Father. 
and Christ spoke from the Father. 8.42, John 8.42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why don't the people love him? Because God is not their father. But God the Father is the father of the Son. And he came from the Father. Whatever he has done was not on his own initiative. 54, 8, 54 to 55. 8, 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Christ is the one who glorifies the Father. Their claim to God is a false claim. They are liars. They don't know him. Christ does know him, and Christ keeps his word. If Christ keeps the word of the Father, he expects us to keep the words of Christ, which are the words of the Father. It's the same. Chapter 12, John 12, 44, John 12, 44 to 50. John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. The outcome of the commandments of Christ is eternal life. He spoke just as the Father told him. Not a word more, not a word less, not a word diluted or polluted. Exactly as the Father told him. That's what he spoke. That means if we reject the words of Christ, we reject the words of the Father, his Father. And lastly, 14, verse 10. John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. The Father in Christ speaks and works according to the will of the Father. There is no way to say that one loves Christ or even denies Christ, does not love him, and still make a claim for God. That claim has to be a false claim. Now, to sum up, 
let's read one passage of, or two passages of contrast. One from Ephesians 4, and then the other from the book of Revelation. The first one from Ephesians 4. This will contrast and be a contrast like John 14. 4.17, Ephesians 4.17 to 24. 4.17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Two kinds of life. One life before Christ, and one after the true knowledge of Christ. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This love of Christ must endure. It must endure until the end. Revelation 2, verse 1, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He commends them for their endurance. They have done much and suffered much, and they have rejected false apostles and even the deeds of the Nicolaitans. All that was well and good. They were commended. However, they must press on. Remember it said in Matthew 24, 12, that the love of many will grow cold. And then in 24, 13, but he who endures till the end shall be saved. Here too, he says in verses four 
and 5. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Our first love cannot be forsaken. Cannot be forsaken. Remember, therefore, verse 5, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The church won't exist. Christ will remove the church from among them if the people do not repent, if they do not do the deeds they did at the first. Lampstand signifies church, according to 1 verse 20, Revelation 1 20. We must love Christ, keep his words, and keep his words faithfully until the end. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.